It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a warren of wisdom in a willful world. With your host, Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, and Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the mostest, I'll <laughs> say. Together, we are the founders of the Reader's Choice website from Survival Top 50, your source for both medical education and an entire line of the best health savings account eligible medical kits on the interweb. Yes, and that would be doomandbloom.net. Actually, you can use doomandbloom.com too. <laughs> That's right. Now, if you've just returned from your year-long attempt to find the Northwest Passage, well, you may have noticed we've changed our format. You are going to hear more frequent shows, but they're going to be a little shorter to go straight to the information that you're looking for without a whole lot of housekeeping up front. Now, some of the stuff you hear on this show, by the way, by the way is outside the conventional medical wisdom. However, we keep active medical licenses in our home state of Florida, and so we'd like to keep them. So I have to tell you that... All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care, please, whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Don't listen to a darn thing we say. Or should you? Aha. <laughs> well, I have my opinion on that topic. <laughs> but we have other topics for you today. In the news, reports from Yosemite National Park in California reveal that at least 170 visitors and park personnel have experienced a mysterious intestinal ailment. Only recently have they been able to get lab studies back that have identified a virus, a special virus called norovirus, as the culprit in at least two cases. With most of the rest consistent with the illness, they think that it's all norovirus. Now, hearing about this incident struck a real chord for me personally. I often write about various medical issues in austere settings like trauma, epidemics, things like that. It doesn't, however, take a survival scenario to suffer from a severe infection. For example, I converted to positive for tuberculosis. Tuberculosis, that's right, the disease that killed so many people in previous centuries during my work with Cuban refugees during the 1980 Mariel Boatlift. I was a young guy back then, and I had to take care of a lot of folks that were coming off really sick, people that were prisoners that Castro just decided to sort of dump on the United States and a lot of other real normal, nice folk too. And I still carry two little nodules in my lungs that are visible on x-ray. And that was after months of having to take multi-drug therapy in order to try to calm the infection. So it remains dormant in my body. It could one day possibly come up again, but I guess that after this amount of time, it probably never will. Uh, in 2017, a little more recently, <laughs> we experienced a, a, actually a medical issue while visiting New York City. Amy has uh, one of our daughters in New York City, in Brooklyn, New York, as a matter of fact. And this was very common, so common, in fact, 
that it surprised us that we hadn't yet written about it at the time. My wife, Amy, is a nurse practitioner. She had acute gastroenteritis, or what they call the stomach flu. Now, when this infection hit you, it hits you like a ton of bricks and makes even the healthiest individual absolutely miserable. Amy required an urgent care visit, no small issue, I'll tell you, in a strange and heavily populated city trying to find a doctor. We wound up finding a doctor, I think a Russian doctor in uh, that neighborhood uh, of, the, of the city, and they gave her some stuff. They figured out that it was norovirus because apparently it was going around like crazy. Norovirus, N-O-R-O-V-I-R-U-S. If we had looked at statistics from that time, we would have found that she was one of just nearly 2 million outpatient visits that were caused by, indeed, the stomach flu or norovirus every year. It's the most likely cause of viral gastroenteritis in humans. Uh, originally, it was called Norwalk virus after the place where it was first identified in the 1960s. And since then, it's been blamed for about 50% of all cases of stomach flu or gastroenteritis in the United States. Worldwide, there are more than 200 million cases of norovirus every year. It affects people of all ages, and particularly dangerous, so in the elderly, the very young, and those with weakened immune systems. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. Winter is the most common time for outbreaks. So this is not surprising that this Yosemite, uh, Yosemite National Park virus wound up coming in in January. Norovirus is very contagious. How contagious? I'll tell you this much. 5 to 20 particles of the virus can cause illness. And that's, you, so you can have billions of these things in your body. But just 5 to 20 particles can actually be transmitted to you, let's say in a little puff of air from somebody nearby who sneezed, and you can get it. Oftentimes it's uh, transmitted through contaminated food or water. But close personal contact, air droplets from uh, vomit, contaminated work surfaces, even toilet flushes can cause the virus to be passed on to you. Infection can be passed for a while, even after the patient appears to have recovered as well. Here's an extreme example of exactly how contagious this virus is as well. In one outbreak reported in 1998, there were 126 people that were dining at this restaurant when one person vomited on the floor. And of course, as you can imagine, that probably was cleaned up pretty darn rapidly. But still, 52 people out of the 126 fell ill within three days. Now, more than 90% of the people who dined later at the same table reported symptoms and more than 70% of the diners at nearby tables got sick as well. The thing with norovirus is it's actually a pretty hardy microbe and known to survive it for long periods of time, other than just a few hours like a lot of viruses do. They can survive for long periods of times outside the human host. It can live for weeks and on countertops, let's say, and up to 12 days on clothing. 12 days on clothing. They can survive for months in still water. Now, there are disinfectants that are effective against the virus. Chlorine works. Bleach will, for example, very quickly eliminate it. And exposure to high heat will do so also. Uh, the symptoms of the norovirus include nausea and vomiting, watery diarrhea, and sometimes very severe abdominal cramps. 
I'll tell you, with Amy, it was abdominal cramps. She was really in a lot of pain. These usually appear within just 12 to 48 hours of exposure. I mean, you get sick really fast. And along with this, you wind up getting muscle aches and headaches and fever and those kinds of things uh, that you see with almost like any flu-like virus. So I guess it's, that's why they call it the stomach flu. Luckily, there are, are very few people that actually die from this. And the reason why they die is usually because they're very dehydrated. That's the main danger in those people that are infected with the virus. So if you can't keep up with your fluids, well, they'll have to give you intravenous fluids. In times of trouble, of course, you'd have to try to continue to push oral fluids as best you can in somebody like this. It, that would be a time where you would probably see some deaths as a result of norovirus or in maybe very underdeveloped countries. Unlike some viruses, immunity to norovirus is just temporary, just maybe six months or so. Uh, after recovering, you'll still see that there are people that will experience the norovirus symptoms. The immunity is just temporary. And it's possible, by the way, to get it more than once. That is pretty bad to wind up getting that more than once, I'd say. Outbreaks of norovirus, well, they often occur in closed places. So you hear about them in cruise ships where people are sort of captives on large ships, but still in a lot of enclosed spaces. Some people spend a lot of time in very large dining areas, things like that. But you'll also see it in other places like nursing homes, schools, camps, and even prisons. Shellfish like oysters, those are pretty uh, common Sources of contamination, salad ingredients also, those are the foods most implicated in norovirus outbreak. In Amy's virus, I think it might have been, well, a kiosk that advertised the world's best hot dogs. And boy, they were tasty, but I don't know. I think that they may have caused her problems. As with most viruses, there is no cure for norovirus infection. Antibiotics are ineffective. They are meant to kill bacteria, not viruses. I've mentioned that a million times on this show. Uh, treatment involves the prevention of severe dehydration. Basically, you gotta keep fluids in this, these people. They're losing fluids at a rapid pace due to the diarrhea, uh, maybe because of sweating due to fevers, things like that. So you gotta keep them with fluids in their systems. Uh, in developed countries, the ready availability of IV fluids, well, you know, that makes a big difference in terms of the survival and the speed of recovery of these uh, victims. And I just feel bad for people in areas that don't have ready access to IV fluids. And of course, in scenarios where they won't either like survival scenarios. For dehydration, well, there are many symptoms that you can identify dehydration by. These people will have a very dry mouth. They'll wind up having less urination in terms of volume and uh, the dark color of the urine. The urine usually becomes very dark. That is one thing that is very, uh, I would say, uh, pathognomonic. Have you ever heard of that word? Pathognomonic is a word that describes a symptom that tells you exactly and precisely what the problem is. So if it's pathognomonic, it is something that tells you, oh, this guy has got this. And unfortunately, there are few uh, symptoms that are actually pathognomonic of any one specific illness, but you've learned a new word today. Well, norovirus may not have a cure, 
Oh, I wanted to mention that the, their babies, babies indeed, will have issues with dehydration. And if they have issues with dehydration, you can tell, they won't be able to tell you that they have a dry mouth or anything like that. But you'll notice that they don't have any tears when they're crying. And they're very, very irritable. That's a, those are signs of dehydration in uh, infants, for example. And another way you can tell is by tenting of the skin. When the, and this is adults or children. You can pull on the skin, and that identifies the skin turgor. Oh, you may have word, learned a new word. Again, turgor is basically the elasticity of the skin. So the, the skin, when it has less fluid in it, less water in it, it becomes less elastic. And so what happens is, is when you pull the skin up, it just sort of stays there. It doesn't snap back like your skin, let's say, on your forearm. If you do it right now, you can just uh, pinch your forearm and lift it up a little bit, and you'll see that the skin comes right back. It won't do that. It'll just stay tented in people that are very severely dehydrated. Of course, for that, you can use anti-diarrheal medications. I recommend loperamide, uh, Imodium, uh, 2%, and that is uh, 2 milligrams, I'm sorry, and uh, that is an excellent drug to have. Anti-vomiting drugs are very useful. On then Centron, that's uh, Zofran, uh, that is very helpful to prevent the loss of body fluids. It is, I think, a prescription drug, but if you tell your doctor that you're traveling or you're concerned about a situation where you may become in contact with uh, contaminated water or, or things like that and wind up getting a disease that makes you vomit, well, they really shouldn't have any problem prescribing a dose or two of Zofran for you. So norovirus may not have a cure, but prevention, that is definitely possible. To decrease the chance of norovirus infection, you've got to do a few things. Number one, you have to wash your hands, and you have to do it frequently, and you've got to use soap and water. Because norovirus, by the way, is relatively resistant to alcohol. You can't possibly kill it if you use enough hand sanitizer, but soap and water is actually better in this case than a hand sanitizer. And you've got to do it, especially after using the restroom or handling any type of food. And you've got to do it, if, especially if you, are, if you are a victim of norovirus, you've got to do it for a good two weeks after becoming infected. Yes, you can be contagious for that long. You want to wash your food before cooking. You want to cook shellfish thoroughly, super thoroughly. There's no rare shellfish meals for you. Uh, frequently disinfect contaminated surfaces with a bleach solution, maybe 5 to 25 drops of bleach per gallon. I would say more than that. I'd say a one part bleach to 10 parts water, but maybe that might be overkill. Keep sick individuals away from food preparation areas. That is so important. You have to keep the sick people away from the healthy people. You want to avoid close contact with others when you're sick. And you certainly don't want to share utensils or other personal items with them. That is a bad idea. While you're handling the person, the sick person, or handling any soiled items from the sick person, you always want to use disposable gloves. And you want to immediately remove and wash clothes that may be contaminated with any vomit or feces. That is a big issue. If you had the ability to machine dry these, well, I would probably do these after you wash them. It may be difficult to completely eliminate the risk of infections like norovirus, but if you have careful attention to hand and food hygiene, that's such an important thing to prevent, goes such a long way to prevent not only norovirus, but pretty much any other infections as well. Well, and speaking of infections and viruses, we're in the middle of flu season. 
And just last year, we had one of the worst since the 2009 swine flu epidemic. Yep, that was a pandemic. The pandemic, swine flu was the first worldwide flu pandemic caused by a new flu virus in more than 40 years. The Hong Kong flu back in the 60s, I think, was the last one that was a brand new virus. It's estimated that the swine flu pandemic caused more than 12,000 flu-related deaths in the U.S. alone, many more worldwide. But the big difference, that you may ask, say, oh, well, that happens anyhow. But the big difference between the swine flu and the typical seasonal flus was that nearly 90% of the deaths were in people younger than 65. In general, it's old folks that wind up dying from the flu, but young folks younger than 65 certainly were the grand majority of the deaths from this flu. That's bad. If you got the flu, you know it's a big deal, man. It's fever, fatigue, all sorts of respiratory symptoms, and worse, it's a even bigger deal if you're one of the millions of folks that have medical problems like diabetes, lung or heart disease, maybe even cancer. If you, let's take heart disease, for example. Multiple studies have shown an increased risk of heart attack and stroke just in the few days following the flu. So if you are getting over the flu, you still can have a bigger chance of having a heart attack or a stroke if you have those kinds of medical issues, heart issues, in the first place, you know, coronary artery disease, things like that. So that means that the flu can be deadly to a lot of people, especially adults 50 years of age or older, and especially those with medical issues, but also the very, very young. So infants can really die from the flu and, and anyone with, uh, with an immune system that has been weakened for one reason or another. And I've got a 30-something-year-old son that's a prime example. He had very brittle diabetes. He took care of it until he left the house. And once he left the house, well, he thought he was invulnerable. He didn't care for himself, didn't take care of his sugar levels, went really, really high all the time, wound up in the hospital a number of times, eventually lost part of his sight, lost his kidney function. He actually was on dialysis for more than a year and eventually wound up getting a kidney transplant and he has to take medicine every day that to prevent immune system rejection of the organ and that weakens his immune system. So he would be a very bad person to wind up getting the flu. Now, how many people get the flu every year and how much does it cost our medical infrastructure? That's sort of important to know. The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they recommend the flu vaccine. But how well does the vaccine work? Here's what you should know. 5 to 20% of the entire U.S. population comes down with the flu every year, and that hospitalizes more than 200,000 citizens annually. Think about how many hospitals that fills up. And of those 200,000, 3 to 49,000 will die from complications related to the flu. Now, modern medical care costs money, and just taking care of a patient costs a whopping, of all flu patients, costs a whopping $10 billion. That's a lot of money. Now, in terms of the flu vaccine effectiveness, it varies from year to year. The government tries to aim for about 70% protection. Last year was only 29%, and in previous years, uh, about four or five years ago, there was one that was only 19%. But if you can get 60 to 70%, the government seems to feel that that is uh, worthwhile to do. I guess especially in older people that might not be unreasonable. 
Uh, physically, the average person gets sick after about one to four days of being exposed to the flu virus, a little bit longer than the norovirus. You can actually be contagious even before you notice symptoms, by the way. Uh, adults can transmit the virus from a day or two before symptoms begin all the way through about five to ten days after you get sick, even in the recovery phase. Even when you're beginning to feel better, you still could pass the flu on, so you just got to be very, very careful with regards to that and do some of the things that I mentioned previously. Now, is staying indoors in cold weather a good way to prevent catching the flu? The flu season is very similar to when people get norovirus, so it's a little longer, of course. Actually, it goes from about October, September, October to uh, early spring. But is staying indoors better? In other words, if you go out in the cold, are you going to catch the flu more likely? Not really. The truth is not really unless you're a hermit and there's never anyone else in the house with you or in your cave, so to speak. Well, the deal is... In crowded places, especially indoor places, people are more likely to get the flu. And that's because of all those viruses that people cough and sneeze out. These things are floating in the air and they're more concentrated in a closed space. So if you've got six kids and the the parents and you have your, 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 your parents are also living in the house, you've got an extended family and this house that there's a lot of stuff that's floating in the air that's pretty darn concentrated and it's... A concern. So anyhow, we're now in peak flu season. January is peak flu season in the U.S., so uh, you should have some anti-flu medicine available in your survival medicine cabinet. We've talked about Tamiflu, T-A-M-I-F-L-U. That's a very popular option. It's been used for years, and if you get some of that, you're in pretty decent shape. But now there's actually a new option that's a one-day therapy, one day alone. Take a pill, and, and you are good or two pills and you're good that's something called zofluza x-o wow x-o f-l-u-z-a i actually wrote about this last year when it was first approved by the fda if you think zofluza is a tongue tongue twister i'll tell you it's generic name generic names are even worse is veloxavir marboxyl wow and it's very effective though if your symptoms started less than 48 hours ago like tamiflu uh, it helps stuffy nose, cough, sore throat, fever chills, uh, aches, tiredness, and all those symptoms makes them less severe and may shorten the recovery time by a couple of days too. Unlike existing flu medicines like Tamiflu though, Zofluza works slightly differently. Tamiflu tries to block viral material from actually infecting other cells, but Zofluza instead stops, stops the cell from hijacking the mechanism that healthy cells use to replicate viruses. Virus goes into a host cell, one of your cells, and that's where it replicates itself. It doesn't have the ability to reproduce on its own. It has to be in a host cell to be able to do that. And so that apparently uh, eliminates the virus sooner than even Tamiflu does. According to the company, people not only seem to recover faster, but are also less likely to pass the virus on to someone else when Zofluza is used. Uh, Tamiflu takes about three days to kill the virus and has to be taken twice a day for five days. Zofluza could be one a one-time dose. So obviously, if you're the kind of person that has difficulty remembering to take your medicines, this would be a pretty good thing to have around. 
So Fluza works for adults and children who are le- the children have to be at least 12 years old though. They have to weigh at least 88 pounds. So that's 40 kilograms. There are very few side effects, actually, to using Zofluza or even Tamiflu. Most of these are related to allergic reactions to it, which seem to be pretty rare. If you've had an allergic reaction to these medicines, please send me an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. I would like to know if people have had reactions to it that are other, anything other than uh, allergies. Although the company that makes Zofluza stops short of saying it's perfectly safe in pregnancy or breastfeeding. It does say it can be used if the risks of a bad flu on a pregnant lady and her fetus outweigh the risks of, let's say, an allergic reaction. Influenza during pregnancy can cause pretty severe complications. It really can harm both mother and baby. So, you know what? In some cases, I think the benefit of using the medicine to treat flu symptoms may outweigh the risk. Now, you can take Zofluza with or without food is taken as soon as you first notice flu symptoms. That's so important. It is important not to wait because the drug may not be effective if you've been sick for longer than 48 hours. And that's why if you have a doctor who's oftentimes busy and you can't get in to see him for a couple of days, that's why you should probably at the beginning of every flu season ask your doctor for a prescription for Tamiflu or Zofluza so that in case it's hard to get in, you can start taking the medicine as soon as the symptoms start. I can't emphasize that so much. And really, if uh, I don't think a doctor would have any problems writing you a prescription or writing a prescription for you and maybe uh, a couple for the rest of the family at the beginning of flu season. It would save them some trouble and also may stop some of their employees getting sick or them from getting sick as well. So... I think that it's, I think it would be a pretty bad thing for a doctor to refuse a prescription for either of these medications. There are some precautions. They don't want you to take the medicine with a laxative, an antacid, or a vitamin or mineral supplement that contains calcium, magnesium, iron, selenium, or zinc. A lot of you people may be taking some of these things on a daily basis. And Anything that includes dairy or calcium-fortified juice because it makes it less effective if you are ingesting those things at the same time as taking the medications. The same thing could be said for Tamiflu most likely, but for Zofluza, for that day, luckily it's only a one-day therapy, for that day you should avoid those things. Oh, I do want to say that it's important to know that antiviral drugs like Zofluza or Tamiflu honestly neither of them are effective for treating anything other than influenza virus. So don't take it to deal with a herpes infection or shingles or really any other virus. doesn't cure Ebola either. So it is specifically a flu medicine. It's an antiviral flu medicine. So these are things that you need to know about these medicines. They're, they're great. They do make a difference if you use them at the right time, use them early enough in the disease process, but they're only for influenza. You know, that's about all the time we have for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Survival Medicine Podcast with Joe and Amy Alton. We'll be back next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. 
Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.